Today, we're speaking to Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who has a new book called World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. Sanjay and I had a great conversation about the state of the world, all things healthcare, how he manages writing all of these books, practicing neurosurgery, and being a CNN correspondent. He's a great guy. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sanjay Gupta. So I have so many questions for you. While we're talking about the pandemic, let's just keep talking about it because honestly, how do you think this started? You mean the virus itself? Yes. Well, you know, I think it's come down to two possibilities and one is far more likely than the other, but they both, you know, are possibilities still. One is that this virus jumped at some point from an animal to a human. That is how the vast majority of emerging infectious diseases start, 75 80%. And also SARS, which was a very similar virus that released in 2003, that's how that started. So I think there's a lot of, you know, sort of um, historical evidence that that would be the case here as well. The other possibility is that it was being studied in a lab. It had already been isolated and studied in a lab, and it leaked from that lab probably in the body of somebody, right? There was a lot of people who may have been infected, have no symptoms, so that person may not have known, and then started spreading it. I think the first theory is more likely, but they're both still possibilities. So this is a common practice, and when you say it was generated in a lab, is it done for the purposes of bioweaponry? Or the other thing that comes to mind is a whole other road I won't go down but it's like we've had HIV for so long and, you know, why can't we come up with a vaccine for that? But I don't want to digress too much. But, <laughs> so when they study viruses with this level of catastrophic um, potential, why are they doing that? Are they making them? Are they, they've already found and they've studied them. What is that about? Well, you know, so in this case, I think what possibly happened is that they found this coronavirus. And they knew that coronaviruses could potentially be problematic because of SARS. You know, they went through that in 2003. That killed 10% of the people it infected. That was a really scary virus. People may forget. It ended up not being that contagious. Uh, only about 8,000 people around the world contracted it. But 10%? Can you imagine? So this, when they saw a coronavirus like this, I think at that point there was a concern, could this be something like that? This is the theory. Everything I'm telling you is that at that point, they may have taken this virus, said, hey, this could be a problem, and they're studying it in the lab. They didn't know for sure that it would be a problem. That's part of that whole investigation. This could be totally harmless. Most of them are. But this one could be problematic because it fits the profile of something sinister we've seen before. That's sort of how they approach it. Now, the bioengineering thing, where you'd actually take a virus and re-engineer it, I mean, that's a more challenging sort of thing to defend. In some ways, they do it because they're trying to anticipate the way the virus is going to change. I think this virus is going to grow this way. And if it grows this way, oh my gosh, that's going to become far more contagious. So let's get ahead of that. Let us re-engineer it, make a bunch of therapeutics or even a vaccine for something we think might happen. So it's crazy stuff. It's science fiction in many ways, except it's real now. That type of research is happening. And there are a lot of people who defend it, saying it's potentially helpful for us to stay ahead of a bad virus. Do you have an opinion on if it's helpful or not? I think that the idea of taking a known bad virus, 
like a SARS or something like that, and saying, hey, I'm going to re-engineer you to make you potentially worse, I think is probably a bad idea. I think scientifically, you may have some benefit to being able to stay ahead of where the virus may go, but I think the ethics and the safety of it is just too questionable. That happened before. They had taken a bird flu virus and re-engineered it. I think this was in the Netherlands several years ago. And I never forget the scientist who did this wrote an article. And in the article, he basically said, without a doubt, we have just made the most dangerous virus ever known to mankind. And I thought that sentence probably should never be written. That's not a good thing. Yeah, and it brings to mind the statement that I tell my kids so much and that I often refer to, is that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Right. That is, that is a good good way of putting it. It cuts to the chase. I mean, we are becoming scientifically so much more sophisticated, and there's good things with that, but it comes with constantly being mindful of the guardrails, you know, and the ethics and not losing sight of that. I think that's a really good way to put it, Alan. One thing I love about the information that you put out through your various channels is you talk about what we can do the next time this happens and what we can do to be pandemic ready. And I like that way of thinking. And I recently spoke to Adam Grant, who wrote mm. a book called Think Again, which is, sure. you know, fantastic. I really love everything he has to say and the way he thinks about these things is if we reframe the way we think, because we know we're very polarized. We know we have some people who are just non-believers and non-believers in the science, which, you know, in my opinion is you have smart people and you have people that aren't so smart. Because like I said to Adam, you know, if you don't believe in the vaccine or you somehow believe the vaccine would be harmful to you, as soon as you contract the virus, I pretty much bet you're going to run to the hospital. Yeah. And you're going to be okay with whatever those same scientists, the same doctors who are encouraging you that the vaccine is safe and okay to take, you're not going to listen to them on that, but you'll listen to them on once you get the virus, whatever they put in you when you're lying in that bed, possibly unconscious, you're okay with whatever they're shooting into your IV at that point. So to me, you know, the doubt is inconsistent, but- yeah. So it's kind of almost pointless to try to go back and forth, right? We know non-believers, they don't really make much sense. So why waste their time? But what I love about what you do is say, how to prepare for this when it happens again. You stated several times on several different platforms, this will inevitably, of course it will happen again. And how we prepare for that. And that's what I love. You say, prepare your family life, your financial life, your diet, make sure your microbiome. Now I had very, very close contact to be honest. Uh, last week I am vaccinated, I'm mm, proud mm. to say. Um, and I had extremely close contact with someone who is in the hospital with pneumonia right now, a man in his 70s, and he had his third booster. And so me having my vaccine and him having his third booster, I thought certainly, you know, we were okay. We went on a camping trip with the kids and him and I took a, a nature walk and we're just talking about life, as you do with people in their 70s who know a lot more than we do, right? <laughs> um, and so it was pretty close contact for probably an hour. And mm. he's really sick right now in the hospital, and hopefully he's responding to medicine and he's going to be okay. But it's interesting. I, I'm still okay. Thank God, knock on everything. But I am meticulous, like an athlete, as I'm sure you are, with my diet and my supplements and my CMOS and my amino acids and my humic acid. And I am a big believer in microbiome and gut health 
And actually, funny enough, on Grey's Anatomy this season, I'm giving away a spoiler here, Meredith is about to change her specialty and go back to neuro because we want to address these findings that our microbiome and our gut are a second brain and are as important in our first brain, and we should start treating them as such. So that's mm. going to be my storyline this season, and I'm absolutely fascinated with it. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's a really cool storyline. Yeah, that's really neat. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, just broadly speaking, you know, the health of the people of the country is, it's always important. We've always known that. But even to your earlier point, I think this pandemic reminded us of this in a big way. Just again, at a macro level, if you look at this pandemic, it is often the richest countries in the world that get hit the hardest. That's not normal. Typically, you think malaria, tuberculosis, they hit, you know, third world countries, countries that don't have as many resources. I think there's always this perception that wealth buys health. And I think we know that that's not the case. But I think also the, some of these diseases of affluence also predispose people to having worse outcomes with this disease. Now, I realize not everyone has a choice. It's really hard for some people to just simply have good lifestyle, like even getting good foods and stuff. Uh, having the time, let alone the space and environment to exercise, whatever it may be. But when you look at the United States as a whole, we had a lot of the risk factors that meant that we were going to get really hit hard by this disease. And I think there's a lesson in there going forward. As you say, when it comes to our healthcare system, it's so focused on taking care of people once they're already in the fire, you know, kind of pulling them out of the fire, not this continuum of care so that you can really keep people healthy throughout their entire lives of body and mind, by the way. We've just never thought of healthcare that way. I think when it comes to improving our personal health, including, you know, really understanding our microbiome, understanding the connection between our microbiome and our immunity. I mean, the idea of what your microbiome right now is, Alan, could in some way help predict how you would respond if you now got a COVID infection. There's some correlation between the status of your microbiome measured in all sorts of different ways and what your likely outcome of the disease would be, which I find remarkable, right? So what you eat truly informs how well you do when it comes to these types of diseases. Again, you know all this, but I think when I visualize that, First of all, it makes me want to eat well, you know, because I'm thinking I'm this a direct impact on immunity in the middle of a pandemic, what I eat. But then, you know, it also keeps me healthy, obviously. You know, these are good foods that I'm eating. Good foods are associated with a good, diverse microbiome. Right. And I, I am very afraid of contracting the virus because I have asthma and I've had it mm. since I was very young. So I'm very careful and really was very scared this time because I had such close contact. But I'm shocked, honestly, that I didn't get sick and I'm attributing it to my diet. And I, I just want to say that I think it's important to take a moment while we're on this topic of food and diet. We are acknowledging that there are such things as food deserts. Yeah. There is plenty of areas all over this country in every city where good organic food is not available or if it is, it's too expensive. But I think just cutting back little things, it's about discipline and personal choices. Because at some point, well, there's no healthy food around me, can also be a crutch and an excuse to some extent. Because the statement that healthy food is too expensive, that one I don't like. If it's unavailable, then that is something sort of beyond your control if you're living in a rural area. And that's definitely something beyond your control. And, and we know that that definitely exists in the supermarket wars and, and how they, you know, the placement of processed foods and 
all of that stuff. But if you simply eliminated things that we know to be really, really bad for you, like soda, Mm. don't drink soda, drink sparkling water. There are choices you can make to empower yourself and not feel like such a victim of the consumer world that is our food market. Because we know there's monopolies and all of these terrible things that go on. But we do have to find a way to empower ourselves through those barriers. And just a banana and just sparkling water instead of soda, you know, instead of the cereal, a banana. I mean, everyone can find a banana, right? Just a handful of clean nuts. I mean, we don't have to eat too much. We eat too much food. I'm a big believer in fasting and I don't get hungry because I drink broth. You know, I just make veggie broth or tea and I just drink that all day long. And I think that I subscribe, and I don't know if you agree, your body is exhausted from breaking down food and breaking down processed food. And if your body and your cells have time to rest, they can fight off things that come into it. But if your cells are exhausted because they're fighting through fats and salts and all this other crap that's in processed food, they have absolutely no time to deal with a virus when it comes. Yeah, I'm look, there's a there's a lot to all of that, I think, in terms of your overall ability to fight the infection. It is interesting to me, sort of the broader point that you're raising, you know, I mean, we work in a system in healthcare that's spends close to four trillion dollars a year. You know, it's it's I mean, four trillion dollars. It's a remarkable amount of money. And if we were serious, and we also can say about seventy percent of disease is preventable. And food in hospitals is the worst. Sorry to interrupt you. But food in hospitals is abhorrent. I know. I know. It never gets never gets rave reviews for sure. And then I remember there was a McDonald's in the Cleveland Clinic lobby once, and I thought that was an abomination. I think they subsequently got rid of it. But yeah, I mean, but seventy percent of this disease is preventable. So you're talking, you know, two and a half, three trillion dollars that is totally not necessary to be spent. If even a tiny fraction of that was actually spent on making sure those food deserts you talked about didn't exist, that would go such a long way right? I mean, if you're serious about actually improving people's health, improving their outcomes, cutting costs, you would more likely put great, you know, healthy food in these locations where there isn't enough rather than spending another, you know, trillion dollars on taking care of really hard to treat disease. So it's fascinating to me, but I think you're absolutely right. When I think about future pandemics, what we bring to it in terms of our own health is a critical, critical point. And I think it got overlooked a little bit in this pandemic. We didn't think about that enough. And I think hopefully we'll learn for next time. Now the healthcare system, it got overwhelmed, right? But typically I always say there's no money in healthy people, right? (laughs) Healthcare, there's no money in healthy people. No one has any incentive to keep people well because that's not how hospitals make their money. And now, you know, that came back to bite them in the ass because they cannot keep up with how overwhelmed they are. And on the flip side, the other thing that's interesting to me is how little hospitals invest. Now we're going a little bit more, and I know you have to be so politically correct here because of your your status, but it's amazing to me how hospitals treat nurses, you know, and how nurses weren't meant to get COVID tests. You know, for this whole first, I don't even know the stats on that currently now. I haven't checked on it recently, but I have quite a few friends who are nurses. And shout out to all my nurse friends. I love you all dearly. Uh, They they weren't required to have COVID tests. They don't care if the nurses have COVID. They don't want to know if the nurses have COVID. If nurses are going to stand up and say, we're understaffed, we can't do this. If you speak up in the hospital, you're just going to get cut. 
If you complain, mm. you're just going to get cut. And it would make more sense to have a happy staff, to have mm -hmm. happy nurses, nurses who feel well cared for, nurses who feel appreciated, valued. They're going to produce better for you. When they have rest, when they know they're being looked out for, you're going to have better outcomes because they're going to feel better. They're going to take better care of the patients. The financial piece makes sense to just be proactive, but somehow the hospitals are so far behind that they haven't gotten that message yet. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I totally agree with you about nurses. I mean, you know, I finished my residency in 2000. I did a seven-year residency. How long was yours, by the way? I guess seven years <laughs> It's too, been right? 18. No, I'm a, I'm, I'm a general, I'm chief of general surgery now, but I've been practicing at the same hospital for 18 years. <laughs> right. For 16 years, uh, I guess. 18 seasons, 16 years. <laughs> it's a long time. Yes. But, um, but yeah, neurosurgery residency, seven years, and the nurses get you through it. I mean, they just, they're the lifeblood of any hospital. And as you know right now, Ellen, there's a huge shortage of nurses. I mean, when you talk about some of these hospitals being overrun and you really look at what's going on in the hospital, sometimes it's not even a bed situation as much as it is a staff situation. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, that's another problem. And probably nurses have been underpaid. That's part of what's been going on and undervalued, as you say. It's got to change. Everybody knows it has to change now more than ever, considering the need. Now, what do you think it takes to make that change? Is it legislative or is it just simple hospital administrators? Now, my sister is a brilliant woman and she owns a consulting firm and she consults people who buy and sell hospitals. Um, hmm. And she could probably speak well to this. But where would hospital change, how would that happen? If, if this, by some grace of God miracle, we could see some administrative change in hospitals, where could that start? Well, you know, I mean, I hate to overly simplify, but obviously it comes down to money to some extent, uh, to a large extent. And I think, you know, the way healthcare teams are reimbursed for taking care of patients, how nurses are adding real value, obviously, to that whole equation and how to make sure that that value is, is being recognized, that's being reimbursed. That always, I think, drives it more than anything else. But I think right now, to be honest, there's just a huge nursing shortage. I mean, nurses are in very high demand right now everywhere we go, um, you know, around the country. And I think it's a reminder of just how valuable they are and how in demand they are, but also, I think, an opportunity for some of that sort of change through their own legislative lobbying or whatever it may be to happen. They're very much in the driver's seat. I feel like people who own hospitals are just, they're billionaires. They're just so far removed. They're not, it's not like the owner of the hospital is walking around, you know, and on Gray's, it's like we all own the hospital. It's not like the owners <sighs> of these hospitals, from what I understand, and I certainly could be wrong, it isn't my business, but I have had some conversations with my sister. I think some people who own hospitals, it's one of many businesses that they have. Yeah, I mean, I think that the private hospitals are often these conglomerates, you know, and maybe many of them getting together to invest. But obviously public hospitals and university hospitals and academic hospitals, the public hospitals in particular, many of them are still sort of compensated the same way. You know, they're still taking insurance. They still take federal entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, and that's how they're compensated for the care of certain patients. But yeah, it's, um, it's a really fragmented system. Alan, sometimes. So I think that makes it challenging to say, hey, nationally today in the United States, we're going to do something about nurses. You know, you got private system, you got public system, you got the VA, you have all these different insurance providers. So it makes it really hard to get things done in healthcare, period. 
at least at a very broad level. Yeah, you say VA, that's another area which takes me back to all of your work and writings and teachings about mental health and spiritual health and just taking care of your emotional health. I went to um, Walter Reed one year, I'll never forget it, mm. to you know, do a tour and, and meet some soldiers who were suffering from traumatic you know, amputations and traumatic brain injuries and things. I was so taken aback by just the starkness and how depressing the actual walls were in mm. the hospital. This is so far from a healing environment. Where are the plants? Where is a pretty pink wall? Where is a pretty yellow mm. wall? Where is the color? Where is the, you know, I mean, obviously hospitals have to be sterile, but there's still a way that hospitals could create a more healing environment the care or the time is not taken to heal. And that's why it's interesting. People, when they're in the hospital, they just want to go home, right? Because even though the hospital is the best place for them, they just want to go home because the hospital is so sort of uninviting. So, I mean, I hope if one more thing could come out of this pandemic is that, you know, we could really open our eyes to our big general healthcare system and make some incremental changes wherever we could, if there's any administrators listening, because I interviewed this brilliant woman, Michelle Harper, last week, who wrote this great book called The Beauty and Breaking. She's an emergency room physician out of Philly. Mm. And she was a hospital administrator and trying to work in the ER and do paperwork. And it's a beautiful memoir if you're looking for something to read. Yeah, I love it. I will, I will, I'm voraciously reading nowadays, so I will find it. Thank Great. You. Me too. That's actually one of the things you talk a lot in your current in book, your, um, current book um, Keep Sharp, right? Yeah. Um, Keep Sharp. I'm not all the way through it yet. But I love it. And thank you. It's actually, you know, I say in every episode, this is one of the reasons I did this podcast. But truly, it's really true. There's so many things that made me want to take on another job because, you know, at this point, I'm like, ah, I want to work less. I don't want to work more. <laughs> and my kids are getting older and I really love hanging out with them and being involved. But having different things to do in keeping your mind sharp and trying new things and learning new things, I'm trying to learn how to surf. You know, I'm trying to still trying to learn how to speak Italian 30 years later. You know, all of these things. Is that why you do so many things? Oh, um, you, you know, it's interesting. When I wrote this book, I felt that I was validating some things for me rather than inspiring them because I, I didn't really know all of the sort of what was happening in the brain before I, you know, wrote this book. It took me about three years to really do this deep dive with these neuroscientists to really understand the changes in your brain as a result of doing all these things. But I think for me, doing multiple things, I just always felt was such a privilege that I got to do it. I think that was more it than anything. I mean, kind of like you were just saying, I mean, there is a certain joy to it. I enjoy what I do, but I'm also, you know, I'm the son of immigrants and my mom was a refugee until she was 12 years old. And then she came and she became the first woman engineer in the automotive industry. And I think it was always this incredible sacrifice they made. And you're thinking, okay, they sacrificed that. So I want to do as much as I can do. Like the more I do, the more I feel like I've really been grateful for the gift they gave me. And so that's part of it. And then afterwards, I write this book and I find that, yeah, when you are doing totally different activities, 
It is firing up all these different parts of your brain. It's making you more resilient against things like dementia. It helps you remember better in the moment, have more joy, and your ability to have better judgment when it comes to what you're going to eat for dinner, how you interact with your kids. I just found that really interesting. So I felt validated in a way that doing more things was good for your brain. Yeah, and I love the positivity that you approach it with. It's like you see things as these things that I get to do, not these things that I have to do. But these things I have the privilege to do, that brings me joy, the privilege of choices um, and options, which is the power of positivity, which is is another thing I I try to talk a lot about because it's a practice of mine. Certainly wasn't born that way and starting my life with a pretty serious trauma of my mother dying. And so Mm. it's really something I've had to learn as an adult, the power of positivity. So, and it's constantly affirmed. Um, when I speak to people like yourself and super smart, successful people who are always so positive, I definitely believe in the power of positivity. You know, I think it's really, really challenging in your brain to be grateful and have a negative emotion at the same time. It's almost like they counterbalance each other. Like if you are upset about something and then suddenly you fire up gratitude in your brain it almost always will crowd out the toxic feeling. I'm overly simplifying, but when I've been doing all this research, people say if you just practice an act of gratitude or you are empathetic or something at a time when you're angry, it's very difficult to have both those emotions that are so different in your brain at the same time. So I think being optimistic and being grateful, first of all, it brings me joy. I just feel better when I'm that way. I'm sure you do as well. But also, it's so good at eliminating the other things that are infringing on your brain that are sort of trying to pull your attention into something that is more toxic. So that's my two cents as a guy in his 50s now who's been, you know, thinking about this stuff for a long time. Okay, so two things. So first of all, we were born like three weeks apart, right? We're born the same year. You're born October 23rd, and I'm born November 10th, so we're both Scorpios. So I want to get to that in a second, but I want to speak to your point that you just made. So, okay, so here's my story, doctor. I have a daughter, I have three children, and uh, who I love dearly, and my middle child Mm -hmm. is brilliant. I mean, she is very, very, very smart, and her brain is 10 steps ahead of her, right? Mm. But she is inherently negative. And it's the most fascinating thing and the most frustrating thing for me. I lose my patience with her often. I have my most disappointing moments with myself as a mother with her. I lose my temper. Mm. I scream. Mm. I really struggle to be patient with her. And it's such an interesting thing for me to watch because, so she's seven now. She has been so inherently negative. I mean, even as a baby, when I would try to put her in the baby Bjorn, she would try to push her way out of it. She didn't want to be still. She did not want to sit in that (laughs) thing. She would push on my chest, get me out of this, and she would fuss and fuss and fuss. And I always found that so interesting. And the, the older she gets, she wakes up in the morning and you know, we do the same thing every single day. I'm a big believer in routine and stability for children. So we have green water, water with chlorophyll in it, and we have a fruit plate, right, before we can have our cereal. And every morning it's the same thing. Everyone, I don't like this water. It's green. Well, we have this water every day, Sienna. Yeah, but I don't like it. It's green. It's, it's, the water's too cold. The water's not cold enough. 
the, you know, in the fruit plate, you know, I change the fruit plate all the time. So it's different and colorful and pretty and everything. And I don't like that, you know, she'll only point at, and she goes out of her way. We're big uh, fans of Michelle Obama and we love waffles and mochi. And I let them watch waffles and mochi in the morning with their breakfast. And she'll just, you know, come up with ways that I can't hear the TV. Well, if you stop talking, you'd hear the TV. It's just all she does is look for problems. She's wired this way. And your idea of trying to present a positive idea or something to sort of shovel out that negative idea in her mind sounds great, except when I try that, she says, Mama, you're not listening to me. And so what do I do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I... (laughs) And isn't it wild that kids are just wired that way? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm no parenting expert. I will tell you, I will preface by saying that I do have three teenage girls. I've already told you about my oldest, who's like, who is your biggest fan, I think. And um, I will embarrass her. But I feel like my girls went through some... Here's what I would say, and again, I'm no parenting expert. I just want to say... (laughs) Neither of us are experts in anything. And I'm not sure there is such a thing as a parenting expert, right? Because every kid is so different. But... My girls are 12, 14, and 16, and I think at least two of them went through some period of time doing exactly what you just described. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with them? They're just so, you know, they, they, they lack the ability to enjoy life, you know, whatever. And now they're five, seven years later, and they're totally different. So I don't know. I, I guess the wired thing, I, you know, I think it's just too early to tell. <laughs> but I will say, this is more of a question, but how much do you think it's an impact of your other kids? I sometimes found when I took that one child who was acting that way and we were just one-on-one, it was a very different interaction than when it was with the family because in some way she was always feeling like she was slightly ignored. And therefore her way of getting attention was, you know, to throw out some criticism or complaint. I definitely, that's a great point. And I've definitely addressed that. I definitely have addressed it in that way, and I try, not as often as I'd like to, I try to separate her out and have mommy-daughter time alone, and she's still, she's still pissed. I mean, she's just mad. (laughs) She's mad. She's mad about everything. We go to get, you know, our nails done, we'll go to lunch, and, and she's just mad. Is she a perfectionist, too? Like, I mean, does she, is there anything that makes her satisfied? Uh... No, <laughs> she's, I wouldn't necessarily call her a perfectionist. She could either be like a Beyonce or her, like a defense attorney because she's full of energy and never stops running around, oh, okay. dancing, singing, like she's bouncing. She's ah. on the trampoline at, you know, eight o'clock at night. Um, she's like, mom, I just, can't, I can't go to bed. I have to go to the trampoline. I, I trust me when I tell you I'm not tired. What is the, the, the therapist uh, oppositional defiance? They have a, a label mm. for it, oppositional. She just loves a fight, and she loves a challenge. I mean, when this kid is in high school, she's going to kill the debate team. She is just going right. to, like, wipe the floor with every other debater. So, <laughs> I, I, Some of those same traits that kind of drive you crazy when they're young, you know, you know, may very much work to their advantage when they get older. I feel silly again saying this because I'm no parenting expert, but I feel like I've gotten a lot of 
experience now with three teenage girls. Everyone always jokes, right? Anytime I tell people I have three teenage girls, ah, you know, wow, you know, just, just all the sort of, I guess, what people imagine it must be like. And I can tell you, it is really hard. I mean, it's no, no joke at times. I mean, there are times when they just won't talk to me at all. And I will literally be going through my mental Rolodex. Did I do something? So did, did I somehow make somebody angry? Why are they all? And then I'll look at one of them and they'll just roll their eyes and walk by me. And I'm like, am I dressed funny? You know, am I wearing a silly hat? Like, what, why, why am I getting this? And then I realize, there's, as you say, there's no logic to it. But I don't know. You were a teenage girl once. And I guess, you know, you change a lot. And I'm told, ultimately, that they're really going to be good friends of mine. So we'll see. I believe that. It makes me think of the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, and how, you know, you want the kid who's going to, I mean, like Sienna, you know, when she's 20, nothing is going to stop her. Nothing will get in her way. She's not going to put up with any crap from anybody. And I guess with your teenage girls, we also have to remember, and you better than anyone know this, that our brains are not fully developed, right? Until we're 21. So all those neurons are still forming and firing and... Yes, some of it's not their fault. Right, yeah. They just don't have the judgment yet. You're seeing a very primitive sort of brain in terms of frontal lobe still, you know. So when you think of it that way, it softens the blow sometimes of their sort of crazy decisions that they make because you realize that sometimes your brain's just not equipped yet to do it. That's why parents can help put the guardrails up and do all that. But I will just say to anybody else out there who has teenagers... It's hard. I do a lot of hard things. That's one of the hardest things I think I do is raising these three teenage girls. It's challenging. Yeah, somehow I think they're going to turn out to be absolutely fantastic. I, th- I think they'll be really happy. I-, I think they will be. Okay, so now my, my second thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So I told you we were born super close together, same year, yeah. me in Boston, you in Michigan. So we're both Scorpios. That makes us Scorpios, which mm-hmm. are very intense people. Are you a spiritual person because you're such a scientist? Are you spiritual at all? Yeah. I think that would be a very good way of describing it. I mean, I I believe, um, I think a humanist sort of in this regard, you know, I'm always going to be looking for answers, but also willing to accept that I don't know things and that maybe there are some things that are unknowable that are beyond just human knowledge, and that's okay. And we don't have to explain everything for it to be true. You know, it can still be there. And I think that's beautiful. I really do. I come from a family that's very spiritual, so that's part of it. I chose a very, you know, scientific discipline, but I don't think that's taken away that part of my life. Do you believe in the spirit world? Like, do you believe in signs from people who have passed on and that kind of a thing? I thought a lot about this. I, um, in fact, wrote a book years ago called Cheating Death. And part of the reason I wrote it was because I became really fascinated with people who had had... NDEs, near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the reason they were so interesting is because they could talk about what that experience was like and start to give some sense of, you know, is there something beyond just how we think about life and death? I don't know. You know, part of me thinks that there is um, what people refer to as non-local consciousness, that when you are born, consciousness infuses your body as opposed to the other way around, and that there is a reservoir of consciousness there. And most of our consciousness exists non-locally, meaning not in our bodies. And in that sense, I think the physical body is just part of our existence in that sense. It's hard to prove. Some would say impossible to prove. And therefore, does that mean it's not true? No, I don't think absence of evidence is evidence of absence when it comes to some of these things. And I think that 
circling back to positivity, you know, giving your life meaning and finding meaning or finding ways to, to have a more meaningful life. If you look for signs and things, if, if that's what gives your life meaning or your day meaning, you know, I have certain numbers or, or certain things that happen, you know, when my father passed away or when my dog mm. passed away, um, a certain song played. And then every time that song comes on. And so they're all these really serious coincidences that happen to me consistently when someone passes. Mm. And so, hmm. you know, I have conversations with my sister about it, and we talk about whether they're true or not. If that's what gives your day meaning, then, yeah. you know, that's an okay way to look at every time that number comes up or every time that song comes on. It's a far more meaningful and interesting thought to have in your brain that day than, oh, that's just a coincidence. Like, oh, that's just a coincidence is so boring. You know, it's it's so much better to spend four minutes listening to that song, thinking that my dog spirit is in the kitchen with me and, you know, trying to get some euphoria off our energy being in the same place again. Um, so do you believe in astrology? Uh, you mean like uh, that we, both the Scorpios, would have a certain certain personality yes. type yes. and all that? Uh, you know, I haven't really given that a lot of thought, although my wife will send me my horoscope. <laughs> She'll, she'll send me her version of my horoscope every month. And it's actually quite, it's quite funny. It's sort of poetic and it's usually mainly messages she's trying to give me in a, in a poetic, nice way, I think. <laughs> you know, here's what's going to happen in October. Here's what's going to happen in November for all Scorpios out there. But, um, you, know, I, you know, it's funny. In India, they have a huge belief system around when you were born, where you were born, the latitude and longitude, you know, precisely the exact time of your birth and will create these records of what they think your life is going to be based on all that. And it's always amazing to me, like, I don't, again, it, I don't know that there's any evidence of, of any of that being true, but it's such a big part of life there. In some ways, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. It's not a bad thing, but it's a way of communicating that they get great joy out of sort of saying, you know, this is what your life is going to be. And it's usually good things they're saying about your life. So it's another nice way to communicate. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> astrology and like where you're born, when you're born, does it mean that everything that happened to me wasn't just of my own accord, that it was somehow preordained because of those things? That's the part I always get a little hung up on. I feel like I have all free will. This was my doing, you know, good and bad, good and bad. But it was me. And then, well, no, 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 you were born on October 23rd. So that means you were certainly going to end up, you know. So it's always that part of it that I have a hard time sometimes reconciling. Right. So you spoke of your Indian heritage. I feel like Indian cultures, I, I'm not so well versed in them. But from what I do know, it seems like such a spiritual, so many beautiful traditions, particularly the weddings. I think everybody now, thanks to Instagram and <laughs> Um, all the social media, we've all had the privilege of seeing just these gorgeous Indian weddings. And I love Indian food. And I do really believe in spices in our diet. You know, I think turmeric yes. and all of the, the rich spices that are very prominent in Indian cooking, I do believe are good for us and have a lot of healing properties. Do you go to India often or? 
Yeah, you know, I was going quite a bit. In fact, uh, be, uh, until you know, the last couple of years, I just haven't traveled because of the pandemic very much. But we have a lot of family there still, and um, we're actually really close. You know, we, even though we're a world away, we're closer now because of all the technologies and Snapchat, and we can just reach each other at a moment's notice. But I, I, yeah, I love it there as well. And I do find a real sense of, I mean, it's an old country, India, right? It's a, it's a, it's a dense country. People are right on top of each other. And there's a sense of when you're there, you're just immersed in humanity. I always feel when I come home, and I love coming home too, but when I come home, I feel like it's more isolated. It's more sterile. People are in their siloed homes here. You may not see your neighbors very much, whatever. In India, you know, where they, my family lives, you see your neighbors every day. You know everything about each other, and it's very communal. And I like that. And I think that there's a spiritual aspect to that as well. Um, you know, just common belief systems, things like that, that galvanize people together. They're typically very religious Although, as you well know, it was a country that was torn apart by religion in the mid-40s. So, you know, a lot of people gave up their entire lives for their religion. So it's a big part of their life, you know, all throughout India. I mean, faith is something that I think human beings need, whether it's uh, Hinduism or whether it's Catholicism. I am always haunted by, outside of Italy, I think it's the shrine of St. Anthony in a town called Mm. Padua which is outside Venice in Italy. And there, I think if I'm getting this right, there's the shrine of St. Anthony. And he's sort of in this cement tomb in the center of this beautiful church. And all around the church are pieces of his body, sort of dipped in gold, encased in glass at different stations around the church. But on the sort of tomb in the center of the church, there are all of these messages. People post messages to St. Anthony. It's, it's not post-its per se, but like, you know, people tape letters or how, however they've chosen to write their messages. And you just see all of these messages on this giant cement box. And it, it, it's moving because it's like all yeah. of these people truly, truly believe that these bones encased inside of cement somehow will help their dying loved ones or I think the... Shrine of St. Anthony is who you go to to pray for your last no hope or something. I don't know. I'm going to screw that up. But it's just a moving sight, you know, to see, as is, you know, the pilgrimage to Mecca, just to see a giant collection of people in the vibration of that. And everybody hmm. who believes in something is powerful. Do you meditate? I do. Me too. I started meditating a few years ago. Well, several years ago now, maybe 15 years ago. I read this book by this guy named Herbert Benson, and he just wrote a lot about mind-body connection. Maybe I approached it the wrong way or or not the the same way that I would now because back then I was really looking for evidence of everything, right? So I'm like, all right, so this guy wrote this book. Let's go find the evidence behind meditation. Spent a bunch of time with him in Boston because he was showing that, you know, you could lower your heart rate, you could lower your blood pressure, you could lower your respiratory rate. Things that we sort of take for granted now, but at that time, you know, that research was just being done. And he kind of really got me into meditation. I really did feel good when I did it, which, by the way, I think is always the reason you stick with a habit. If it actually makes you feel good, then you're probably likely to stick with it. And I feel great when I do it. I'll tell you, I got a chance to meditate with the Dalai Lama a few years ago. Wow. Which was, yeah, I know, so cool. I, I felt 
like a little league baseball player <laughs> being asked to go play with Mickey Mantle, you know. You know, just quickly, you know, the Dalai Lama is somebody who's chosen to be the Dalai Lama when they are basically a baby or just very young. And so you're the Dalai Lama your whole life. It's all you know. And he meditates from 3 to 6 in the morning, every morning. Takes an hour to have breakfast and get ready. And then he meditates from 7 to just before 9 when he starts his public day. So he has about five hours of meditating every every morning. Wow. And he said to me, I was, I was in India, and, and he said, come over to the house and meditate with me. And I thought, okay, I'm really nervous. But I show up and I do it. And at some point, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot, <laughs> my mind is all over the place. And I see his eyes kind of open up and he's got this really deep voice. And if you heard him talk and he's like, mm, how is it going? You know, something like that. And I said, you know, to be honest, I'm having a bit of a hard time just sort of, yeah, I find meditating really hard. And he goes, me too. <laughs> and I thought, that was beautiful. Thank you. Talk about like taking all the pressure out of the room, right? Really? That's and, an amazing uh, story. Isn't that so cool? But I'll I just tell you, because I know you're interested in this, he practices a form of meditation called analytical meditation. And I've written all about this because I think people think about single point meditation, you know, where you're focusing on a single thing. You may have other types of meditation. Chakras is something that Deepak Chopra, you know, focuses on. But analytical is basically actually leaning deeply into something that you, you're thinking about, a problem that's been plaguing you, maybe something you just read, and just really just letting your mind just... Uh, protected from other thoughts, just think about that one thing. And then even putting it in a thought bubble and letting that bubble sort of rise up, as he described it to me, because when the bubble rises up, it breaks entanglements to the ground, which are sort of the materialistic entanglements that make you think about the problem in the wrong way. You're, you're thinking about it because of money. You're thinking about it because of your relationship with that person. You need to break all those and just look at the problem for what it is. That was how he sort of described it to me. So he reads a lot, and then the next day he meditates on what he read and sort of like deciphers it himself and puts it into his own language for his speeches and his talks and his teachings and all that sort of stuff. I just thought it was fascinating and much easier for me to analytically meditate than, than other types. Different for everybody, I guess. Yeah, I've never heard of that. That's incredible. And if your diet is clean, you can remember what you read the next day. <laughs> If that is you have true. brain exactly. fog and you drink soda and eat a lot of gluten and wheat, you'll never remember what you read the next day. I do TM, <laughs> and I do think that that's, you know, one of the things that I had to sort of get away from, the idea that, and I think people think this about meditation, that you, you know, you have to clear your mind of thoughts. And I thought, well, that's right. completely impossible for me. And so I don't put that pressure on myself. Whatever thoughts come into my mind, come into my mind. And I have my word that I chant, but whatever thoughts come in, they come in and then they go out. And then in the next thought, it's really just about stillness, I think, in, in listening to your breath. Yes. And if thoughts come in, they the come breath. in. And if they don't, they don't. It's amazing that you say the Dalai Lama has a really deep voice because the other thing that I'm very interested in is um, and I'll let you go soon. I know I'm, I don't want to be rude, but I literally could talk to you no, all day. Please. That's fine. The, the other thing that I'm very, very interested in and believe a lot in is frequency and frequency medicine. And frequency medicine is something that's very new or, or not hmm. so new, actually, if Nikola Tesla and, you know, that whole it, it, frequency medicine goes back 
to the 20s, and there's conspiracy theories around how medicine today, as we know it, was sort of formed, Mm. you know, because there was no money in people being well, right? So the Medical Mm. Association was formed, and I think this is correct, by the Chase, Rockefeller, and the Morgan family, the bankers. For the first, what, medical association you're saying? Yes. Is that true? That could be, I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. You could be right. And they also, I think, formed whatever the pharmaceutical thing is as a way to monetize sick people. Yeah. But frequency medicine is, that's a whole show in itself. And I, I'm a big believer in it. I, I really love the concept of it. And there's people who know far more about it than I do. But I really feel a lot about like, you know, sound baths and the power of vibration. And his voice, mm. you said, is so deep and resonant. It's like, <laughs> I believe certain people are in tune with certain vibrations, just like radio stations, right? Like you just like the sound of someone's voice. Why? I believe that the voiceovers on Grey's Anatomy, I don't even think it's what I'm saying. I think some people just like hearing my voice, which was another reason why I thought maybe the podcast, you know, might be something fun and interesting (laughs) to do because I think the frequency of my voice speaks to people the same way if you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, the same way that like Hitler's voice resonated with people. Donald Trump, dare I say that name, his voice, for whatever reason, the frequency of his voice, it certainly can't be the way it looks. (laughs) The frequency of his voice must have resonated and vibrated in people in a way that made them want to respond. It's frequency, I think, is something that we don't think enough about, but it's powerful mode of energy transfer. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that it would be better for me to believe that it was the frequency that was so resonating with people rather than what was being said. Well, nothing that's said makes any sense. So the frequency right, is, the, is the only thing I could possibly so why think it get of. Do you know about frequency medicine? How do you feel about it as a healing modality? Well, I've heard of sound therapy. Is that along the same lines? I actually, you know, you're teaching me today, Alan. Okay, so there are these machines that they sort of, like, you hold a conductor in your hand, and there's, you know, the software, and the software picks up where the frequency in your cells is low. And why I believe in this is because a couple of years ago, I had a pretty serious surgery, which people don't know about. Mm. I had a pancreatic cyst and I was really, really lucky to have found it. I was getting kidney stones and had been rushed to the hospital several times. And the first time they missed it and the second time they caught it. And I had like the most incredible team at Cedars and I was really, really lucky. And it turned out to be, you know, nothing just a simple mucinous cyst. But what was interesting to me about about it was before I had the surgery, you know, I tried holistic methods. I tried acupuncture and frequency medicine to try to shrink the cyst, right? To see, Mm -hmm. and it, it it didn't respond as quickly as they want. You know, obviously there's something on your pancreas, they want to get it off, right? So we don't want to keep things like that there. So I ended up, my doctors were like, your hocus pocus is super cute but we're going to let you do it for for 8 weeks and then you know you're you got to go under the knife. So, I ended up having the surgery and I'm so grateful that I did and all was well and it continues to be well, but after I did these frequency medicine treatments and the machine was picking up where my frequency was low. Like it, all the red dots, so it shows itself there's like a, a diagram of a body 
And when your frequency in your cells is strong and healthy, it comes up green. And when it's not, it comes up red. Because the idea is that everything has a frequency, right? This cup has a frequency. Opera singers can shatter glass because the glass has a frequency. And the opera singer's voice is hitting that glass with the very same frequency. So when two frequencies hit each other, they explode. And actually, the place where I used to go for this modality had a video. And they would show a virus in the bloodstream. And Hmm. the machine can calculate the frequency that that virus is giving off. And then you Hmm. can then program the machine to hit that body with the same frequency. And it will explode. The same way a glass would explode if an opera singer delivers the same frequency that the glass is delivering. So it's a really fascinating modality. I'm super into it. Well, I think the, you know, the ultrasonic therapies, I guess, maybe is a little bit along the same lines because you're using, you're using sound waves there, but I guess at a very specific, you're targeting specific area in the body by using a certain frequency of sound wave. I mean, it's really fascinating. And I guess as you were sort of trying to accomplish non-invasive with regard to your pancreatic cyst, right? So if you can treat something like that non-invasively, they're starting to look at some of these ultrasonic therapies even in the brain. They always thought it would be very hard to do that because the skull is in the way. But now they're coming up with ways to even... It's exciting stuff. It just how much medicine is going to change. It'll become less expensive. It'll become less invasive. Probably going to have modalities that we're using that we don't even really know about or haven't well-defined yet right now. Your kids, my kids are going to probably live and, and get cared for in a very different system than we did because of all that. Do you still uh, perform surgeries? I do. I do still. You do? Um, so, yep. Every week I'm still uh, in the hospital. I'm operating every Monday and then seeing patients in the hospital on Thursdays. And then, you know, we're intermittently very busy. So it's a trauma hospital, something you're used to. Mm-hmm. And um, keeps us keeps us busy. Right. Well, that's amazing that you are able to just do so many things and make an impact in so many different ways. I'm really grateful you're on the planet, Dr. Gupta. Hey, wow. Thank you. That means a lot. I I really uh, appreciate it. An honor to be on your podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm happy to chat anytime. That was fun. Cool. Let's do it again. Let's definitely do it again. All right. We can trade parenting tips. I'm gonna I'm gonna send I'm gonna send your daughter something. So don't don't tell oh. her. I'll send her something. I'll have everybody oh, of my people call your people and get an address and her sizes. I and I will it. send her some scrubs. Oh, that is she look, I'm getting some cool dad points for sure. So. <laughs> exactly. I could, I could use it. I could use it. maybe they will talk to me after that. At least for a couple <laughs> well, days. They better. At least for a couple days. All right, you have a, a wonderful <laughs> right. weekend. You too. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great to meet you. You too. Bye. Bye.